Well, as uh, Pastor Chris was uh, heading out to the DR, we spoke about um, uh, my coming to preach here today. And we talked about me continuing in his series on Romans. Um, but I realized very quickly that uh, I, I was being called to do something else. And, and Pastor Chris very graciously allowed me to come and talk to you today about something that God has been working on in my own life for uh, several months now. Uh, he and I have been talking about this, and uh, I told him that I was developing it into a sermon, and he said, great, I'm going to be gone, why don't you preach it? So I want to thank him for the opportunity. I want to thank all of you for being here um, and for allowing me to come and share this with you today. I want to talk to you today about fear. Now, now none of us really likes fear all that much, but it's not all bad. There are some positive benefits to fear. That actually reminds me of a story. Uh, there was an elderly woman uh, who went to the doctor and after a few minutes in the examination room consulting with the doctor, she ran out the door just in tears and hysterical. And the nurse saw her run out, and she decided she's going to run after her and find out what was going on. And so the nurse runs out after her to, to determine just what exactly is the problem. She comes in, the nurse, after a few minutes, and she storms into the examination room, and she confronts the doctor and says, why in the world would you do that to that poor woman? Why would you tell an 82-year-old woman that she's pregnant? That's just terrible. And the doctor said, yeah, maybe, but did her hiccups go away? <laughs> so obviously fear can be useful in some situations. Um, Scientists tell us that fear is hardwired into the brain. Uh, it's there for a very good reason. Fear allows us to make decisions very rapidly and quickly in dangerous situations. Neuroscientists have identified distinct networks that run from the depths of the limbic system all the way to the prefrontal cortex and back, and they found that if you stimulate these networks electrically or uh, with chemicals, that they'll respond with a fear reaction even in the absence of fear stimuli. Feeling fear is not abnormal, nor is it a sign of weakness. The, the capacity to be afraid is a normal part of our brain function. In fact, if you can't feel afraid, it could be a symptom of some pretty serious brain damage. Feeling fear is not the problem. Dysfunctional fear occurs when we allow the fear to make our decisions for us. Fear becomes problematic when it interrupts our ability to, to function and meet our daily obligations and responsibilities and keeps us from pursuing our goals. And that's becoming increasingly more common in our country. It's estimated that nearly 15 to 20% of us experience some sort of phobia or specific anxiety disorder uh, at least once in our life. In, in the U.S., nearly 8.7% of people over the age of 18 have at least one specific extreme fear. It's estimated that one fear alone, the fear of flying, affects about 25 million Americans. And in a recent survey that they did about people's fears, they found out that people are more afraid of public speaking than they are of death. People would rather die than talk in public. I can empathize with that. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about fear. It seems to treat fear as being in two distinct categories. And it commands us to treat fear in two different ways. 
And, and Jesus himself made these categories clear. In Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So we see two distinct categories of fear here. Fear of the Lord and fear of everyone else. Fear of everything else. The, the Bible contains the exact phrase, the fear of the Lord, about 25 times, depending on which version of the Bible you're using. 23 times in the Old Testament, two times in the New Testament. But it encourages us, us to fear the Lord much more often than just those 25 references. We don't study it often, though. It seems people would rather concentrate on the mercy of God rather than the fear of God. The Bible takes the fear of God very seriously. In fact, in the Old Testament, I counted 158 verses directly relating to or encouraging people to fear God. That's part of the problem, however. Christians see the God of the Old Testament as one to be feared, but the God of the New Testament is the one that flows with mercy. And we have to realize that the God of the old is also the God of the new. He flows in both grace and judgment. Just as much before as after he sent Jesus into the world. The God who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament is the same God that killed Ananias and Sapphira for their sin in the New Testament. I counted almost 40 references in the New Testament calling us to have a fear of God. And contrary to popular opinion, the word used for that in, our, in the exhortations for us to fear the Lord is not better translated as reverence or awe. The best translation of that word is dread. There are numerous examples of, this, uh, of the same Hebrew and Greek words being used to, den to denote bone-chilling, gut-wrenching fear. I think we're actually missing out on something important when we try to water down the concept of the fear of the Lord and make it just respect. We must fear the Lord. When it comes to other fears in the Bible, we're commanded to disregard them. In fact, Scripture tells us more than 80 times to fear not. That's more than any other command in the Bible. The only emotion that is mentioned more than fear in the Bible is love, and the Bible tells us that perfect love casts out fear in 1 John 4.18. So it's clear that the fear of the Lord is a special case. It's different from the other fears in the Bible. So what is the fear of the Lord? The Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Job 28, 28, we're told the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. John read Psalm 111 for us earlier, and it tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all those who practice it have good understanding. Proverbs 1, 7 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. When you encounter God, wise people fear. Only a fool can encounter the glory of God and not be brought to their knees in fear. A, a perfect example of this is in, is in Isaiah. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, we see the prophet, and he's given a vision of God in heaven. And he sees God enthroned in heaven, surrounded by his angels, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. 
And there, when Isaiah is confronted with the vision, he responds in fear. He falls down. Woe is me. He's crushed by what he sees. He confesses his sins and he submits his whole life to God. And all that follows from Isaiah comes from this one fact. He feared the Lord. So it's clear, if you want to be wise, it starts with a healthy fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is not the totality of wisdom, but it is where wisdom starts. You won't be able to get the rest of wisdom unless you start with a fear of the Lord. You can study to learn things. You can immerse yourself in philosophy. You can study the greatest thinkers in the world. You can be renowned by the world for your ability to make decisions and discern the right thing to do. But if you don't have a fear of the Lord, the Bible says you're a fool. So that's the first thing that we need to know about what the fear of the Lord is. It's the beginning of wisdom. But the Bible also tells us that the fear of the Lord hates evil. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. In, verse, in chapter 8, verse 13. And that it is by the fear of the Lord that we turn away from evil. In chapter 16, verse 6. So when we fear the Lord, we cannot stand evil. We can't stand to be around it. We can't tolerate it. It affects what we watch, what we read, what we listen to. It changes the way that we select our friends. When we truly understand the fear of the Lord, when it becomes a part of us, we're not going to have any desire to expose ourselves to evil influences. And you know what? We also won't tolerate the evil in our own lives. Like Isaiah, we're going to want nothing more than to have the evil scorched out of us. We'll do anything we can to exercise evil from our lives. We won't flirt with it. We won't try to push the limits of what God will tolerate. Be honest with yourself. Will you laugh the evil off? Will you pretend it's okay? If so, you need a bit more fear in your life. That's a good test of how well you're connecting with the fear of the Lord. How much will you put up with? How much evil will you allow? When we fear the Lord, we'll simply eject evil from our lives as quickly and completely as we possibly can. The fear of the Lord has so many benefits. Four times in the book of Proverbs, we're told that the fear of the Lord prolongs life. It's described as a fountain that life springs from. We're told that the fear of the Lord is the way we find rest. It's a treasure greater than gold. Those that reject it are on a path of destruction and death. There are other benefits as well. In Acts 9.31, we're told, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The fear of the Lord is a vital part of church growth. The fear of the Lord keeps the church healthy, and a natural product of church health is church growth. So if we want our church to grow, if we want to be obedient to Christ's commands to make disciples, it starts with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord also motivates us. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us to keep the fear of the Lord in mind. To remember that we're going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to answer for what we've done. That motivates us to repent our sin and to keep it out of our lives. It motivates us to obey God and to keep His commandments. It motivates us to share the gospel with the people around us because we know that that day is coming. All of this comes from a healthy fear of the Lord. 
So let, we're going to be taking a look today in uh, Luke chapter 8 at a couple of stories there that provide us with some case studies of the fear of the Lord and the way that people respond to it. We're going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 8. We'll find both our stories there. So turn in your Bibles, please. We'll begin reading in verse 26. Now, both of these stories will likely be familiar to you, but hopefully we can learn something more from this passage about who God is and what he wants us to do about it. So let's read from God's word, Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. It says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he'd worn known clothes, and he, had lived in a ho- and, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell down before him, and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the un- unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and they drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding countryside of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. We see our second case study, beginning at the end of uh, verse 42. It says, As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who'd had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she'd spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him, and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So here we find two very different stories. One with a demon-possessed man living in a cemetery and another with a woman that had very serious health concerns. Jesus meets the man in the isolation of the countryside and the woman he meets in the middle of a large crowd. In his demon-possessed state, the man was trying to avoid Jesus while the woman was seeking him out. But despite these obvious differences, uh, there are some significant similarities. Let's examine them. Because I think the similarities show us something 
that's about very common reactions to the fear of the Lord and the power of the fear of the Lord. The first thing we see is that both situations begin with an encounter with God. In verse 27, we read, When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. And in verse 44, we read that the woman sought Jesus out and touched the hem of his garment. The fear of the Lord begins when we encounter God. Whenever we encounter God and we realize some of his power and holiness, we are brought into fear. That's because we're made aware of our own unworthiness in the face of his glory. As I said earlier, the natural response to an encounter with God is fear. It's the fear of the Lord. The first way that we can learn to fear God is to seek Him for such an encounter. If we don't, our encounter with the holiness of God, it can come at a time when you don't expect it and you're not ready for it. Whether you encounter God through the reading of His Word or through a sermon on Sunday morning or through the testimony of a friend, whether it's a still small voice like Samuel or a vision of God in all of His glory and splendor like Isaiah, the, the natural response is fear. Fear that moves us and changes us. That's the second thing we see here. In both stories, we see people react to their encounter with God. In both cases, we see a physical reaction to the fear. In verse 28, when the demoniac encounters Jesus, we read, When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? God, I beg you, do not torment me. We, we see a similar reaction from the woman in the crowd in verse 47. It says, And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she touched him and how she'd been immediately healed. In both cases, we see people have a physical reaction. Their first instinct, trembling, falling down. Now that doesn't sound like respect to me. Or reverence to me. It sounds like fear. It sounds like dread. And you know what? When we encounter God, that should be our response. The fear of the Lord. And it's only from our knees that the Lord, the, the, the fear of the Lord can come to good effect in our hearts. And there as we kneel at the feet of our Lord, our sin is brought into stark relief. That's the third thing that happens in our story when these people hear Fear the Lord. The unclean was revealed. When we have a revelation of His holiness, we have to realize that our sin will be revealed. In verse 32, we see that the people of the Gerasenes region were keeping pigs in direct violation of Jewish law laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 8. In verse 43, we see that the poor woman who sought Jesus in the crowd had been in an unclean state for 12 years. You see, in Leviticus 15.25, the law states that a woman having her period was considered unclean. She was required to separate herself from the people around her. She wasn't even supposed to touch them or allow them to touch her. So what does the woman do? Instead of trying to hide her unclean state, she throws herself at Jesus' feet and she confesses it in front of the whole crowd, how, how Jesus had healed her. I want you to think about that. That wouldn't have been easy. She would have felt the glare of the crowd. They would have been classed as unclean too because they had touched her in the press of the crowd. 
Instead of the fear of God causing her to turn and flee and run away, she decides to stay and live in that fear. She demonstrated that she feared God more than she did the people around her. This woman was unclean through no fault of her own, but her health condition separated her from her community. Our sin impacts the relationships in our lives. And most significantly, it impacts our relationship with God. We gain a fear of God by encountering His holiness. Both the people of the Gerasenes and the woman with the bleeding had that encounter. However, to live in the fear of God, we have to allow Him to expose our sin and to cleanse us. When we do that, it does something critically important, and that's our next similarity. We find that living in fear of God produces true worship. In Revelation 19.5, we find that the fear of God causes His servants to praise Him. In verse 35, the people of the Gerasenes find the healed man sitting at Jesus' feet and worshiping Him. And what does the woman do when she fears God? We see it in verse 47. She too falls at Jesus' feet. In, in falling at somebody's feet, you're lifting them higher and lowering yourself down. It's a way of truly worshiping them and giving them praise. We're going to never know the true worship of God until we learn to fear Him and learn to live with that fear. In both cases, they weren't just thanking Jesus for what He had done for them. They were praising Him for who He is, and that is the heart of true worship. The fear of the Lord produces true worship. The last similarity we see is that a relationship was restored. In verse 39, the story of the demoniac ends with the healed man returning to his home, testifying to what God had done for him. In our other story, the woman's relationship with the community is restored and her relationship with her family is restored. After 12 years of being unclean, 12 years of being a pariah and having to shut herself off from everyone around her, she's restored in her relationships because she submitted to the fear of the Lord and allowed God to work in her life. The fear of the Lord restores a relationship with Him. We can only have a relationship with God if we're cleansed of our sin, avoid evil, and are obedient to Him. Proverbs 14.27, Proverbs 16.6, Deuteronomy 5.29, and a whole host of other verses in the Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord helps us to do exactly that. The fear of the Lord restores relationships. Most importantly, it restores our relationship with God. But in our story here, we also see another perspective, don't we? Let's look again at verses 34 to 37. It says, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and he returned. These people had a very different reaction to their fear. They're not, they were caught out. Their, their sin of keeping pigs had been exposed. 
their disobedience to the law had been exposed. But rather than confessing and repenting and allowing Jesus to restore their relationship, they reject Jesus. They ask him to leave. The people of the Gerasenes refuse to live in the fear of the Lord. They reject Jesus, asking him to leave, and therefore reject God's wisdom also. In the life of the Gerasenes, who weren't willing to live in that fear, we find that they are not cleansed of their sin. They don't obey his commands. And in doing so, they're unable to have a relationship with God. So what's the difference? We find it in the second part of the phrase, the fear of the Lord. You see, they experience the fear, but not the Lord. That's the missing element. Lordship. The man possessed by demons and the woman both submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But the villagers of the Gerasenes rejected the Lordship of Christ and demanded Lordship of their own lives instead. They chose their sin over their Savior. Lordship changes everything. It's the difference between fear that leads to destruction and fear that leads to wisdom. So so what does it mean to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Clearly, it's, it's a necessary element so that the fear of the Lord can do its work in our lives. So what does it mean? In the end of the story of the demoniac, we see the first important thing about Lordship. In verse 39, Jesus commands the demoniac to go home and witness about what had happened. And despite the fact the Bible tells us the man wanted to stay with Jesus, he obeyed. Over and over again in Scripture, we're told that the defining feature of truly submitting to the Lordship of God is obedience. The whole chapter of Deuteronomy 28 is devoted to it. Obedience is absolutely essential. If you don't obey, Jesus isn't your Lord. That's the difference between how believers view Jesus and how the world sees him. You you can ask them about Jesus. And they'll say, oh, he was a wise man, a gifted teacher, a prophet, someone whose whose words might be worthy of study. But they're not going to say much else. And we look at them and we feel sorry that they're missing something important there. And we name him as our Lord. But often we treat him exactly the same way. We sit on the throne of our own hearts and our own lives and we relegate Jesus to the role of an advisor whispering advice to us over our shoulders. And we still try and run the show. We'll listen to what Jesus has to say, but we're calling the shots. Lordship means getting off the throne of our hearts and allowing Jesus to sit there, allowing him to make all the decisions while we kneel at his feet. That's the difference between naming him Lord and submitting to him as Lord. In Matthew 7, after Jesus is coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and he's starting to wrap things up, he tells us that on the day of judgment that many are going to say to him, Lord, Lord, but he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. He's going to condemn them as workers of iniquity and lawlessness. Part of the journey of discipleship that we take as believers is the process of the Holy Spirit continuing to reveal to us all the ways that we're holding back parts of our lives from Jesus' lordship and repenting them 
and obeying him in every aspect of our lives. Believing doesn't mean perfect obedience, but it does mean a posture of obedience, an orientation towards obedience. It means that when we become aware of our disobedience, we allow the fear of the Lord to motivate us to confess and to repent. The defining feature of lordship is obedience. If you're willfully disobeying God in some aspect of your life, you need to very seriously and carefully examine the throne of your heart to see if you're really allowing Lord Jesus Christ to sit there. Or if you're treating him as the world treats him, as an advisor and just another wise man. Paul tells us in the book of Romans what the eternal effect of the lordship of Jesus Christ is. It's salvation. Romans 10.9 tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But that can't be a false confession. You can't just say that he's Lord. He has to actually be the Lord of your life. And if you name him Lord but don't obey him, you reveal your, con- your confession to be a base lie. If he's your Lord, you will obey. The Lordship of Jesus also reveals to us our only purpose, glorifying the Lord. Colossians 3.17 tells us that whatever you do, in word or, or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And in 1 Corinthians 10.31, it tells us that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When we truly understand the lordship of Jesus, we learn that every other purpose that we thought we had in our lives, even the ones that seemed good, are meaningless compared to the glory of God. One one of my favorite Christian uh, writers is Paris Reedhead. I don't know that he would actually consider himself to be a writer. I think he just wrote sermons and somebody put him in a book. But I love, Paris Reed, I love reading Paris Reedhead's stuff. He points everything towards the Scripture. Paris Reedhead tells, often told a story about his first missionary journey to Africa. As a young man, he, he went there because he'd heard about the people in Africa. And he wanted to help them. He wanted to bring the gospel to the people who were hungry for it. He believed that the people of Africa were continuing in their sinful ways only because they'd never heard the word of God. When he arrived, he found something very different. He found that just like in America, the people there knew that what they were doing was wrong. And they were doing it anyway because they loved their sin more than they loved God. He became discouraged. And Reedhead tells how he cried out to God in frustration. How he knelt in his room... And he called to God saying, you know, I came here for these people. But they don't want to hear what the Bible says. They only love their sin. And there in that moment, in the stillness of his heart, the Spirit spoke to him saying, I know. I know you came here for these people. And that's the problem. You came here for them. And I sent you here for me. He sent him there so that he would be glorified for his glory. He sent him there to obey his Lord. 
Lordship means submitting to our only true purpose, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In lordship, we also come to understand the undeniable end. The undeniable end is the victory of our Lord. You see, Jesus is the Lord, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether the world acknowledges it or not. He is the Lord. He is sovereign over the whole universe, and the day of the Lord is coming. Habakkuk 2.14 tells us, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The day, of the, the day of the Lord is coming, and in that day, the lordship of Jesus Christ is going to overwhelm the world. He's going to arrive in victory, and he's going to take his place on the throne of the world, and his glory is going to be so ubiquitous that it's going to be like, how wet is the ocean? That's the glory of the Lord. Where will he find you on that day? What does that fearful moment motivate you to do? Will you allow the fear of the Lord to reveal your sin so that you can confess it? Will you fall down on your knees in true worship? Will you allow Him to restore your relationship with Him? Or like the people of the Gerasenes, will you choose instead to keep your pigs? Will you choose your sin over your Savior? I urge you today, submit to the fear of the Lord. Let wisdom begin its work in your life. Realize that the Lordship of Jesus Christ is what is demanded of you. For you to enthrone Christ in your heart and in your life. Not just say the right words. Not just believe and and intellectually consent to the right set of creeds. But for those creeds to mean something, He must be Lord. We have to lay down at His feet and give it all to Him. And when the Holy Spirit shines a light into the darkest recesses of our heart and shows us those areas that we're holding back, those areas where we're trying to push ourselves back onto the throne of our hearts, we need to cut it out. And let the fear of the Lord do the work in our lives. Let it expose us for what we really are. Let it shine out so that the glory of our Lord will be shown out to all men and cover the earth. That's what's demanded of you. That's what it means to confess him as Lord. Will you pray with me today?